Welcome to the Planet Football Podcast. I am Grant Wall here on a foggy, rainy New York Monday morning with Luis Miguel Echegaray. How are you doing, buddy? It's a foggy, rainy Monday. I, I just made that song up. Your singing voice is much better than that. <laughs> Truly. Acting school, my friend. Theater background. We will devote an entire episode of this podcast at some point to Luis Miguel's acting career <laughs> and acting school. We may even track down some clips. Please don't. <laughs> For the sake of humanity, don't. Lots to talk about, as always, because the soccer world never stops. First off, Megan Rapino is the 2019 Sports Illustrated Sports Person of the Year. Very deserved, uh, in my opinion. I would guess yours. Absolutely. Uh, that was me clapping. I hope our producer, Harry, will add some uh, applause when I'm doing that. Uh, no, I mean, what, what can you say? I mean, to me, it was a no-brainer. Uh, congratulations to Megan Rapino, recent uh, winner of the second ever Ballon d'Or uh, in the women's game. Obviously, the the World Cup where she won both Best Player, uh, Golden Boot. But it's not just about that. It's it's about what she represents uh, as a person who stands up for what she believes in. And I'm going to be very honest here. The, there is no doubt in my mind that if you read the tweets from SI's announcement of Megan Rapino, there's going to be your, you know... The bros. Uh, the bros, right? The bros don't like it. The trolling who, you know, in my opinion, and it's, I know you share this sentiment, it all comes down to insecurity. It all comes down to some kind of base that says... <laughs> I mean, I just, I'm laughing at this point because it's, it's anything but fueling, you know, not just Megan Rapino, but those who support you know, things that are more important than just the game. We love this game. We all do, and we love sports. But life is bigger than that. And I think that Megan Rapinoe represents that. Well, you and know? that's why she's carrying a sledgehammer on the cover. Right. And it's a beautiful photograph. Yeah. And it's a great piece by Jenny Ventus. And also, by the way, my friend, a great essay from you and the podcast that you did with Jenny. It's just we're all here to really celebrate not just who Megan Rapinoe is, but what she's trying to do. That, to me, is the biggest thing, and I congratulate her. Yeah, check out the podcast. It's a special uh, bonus podcast that went up today, me interviewing Jenny Brentis about her terrific story, which you also should read. Uh, She's also the fourth woman in the awards history to receive it, which fourth, says a lot. Fourth standalone woman ever to win the award in the 65 years of Sports Illustrated. Uh, obviously, that's uh, a too small a number, but it is growing. Uh, and um, I do think history will... Uh, as time goes on, even more so view Megan Rapinoe kindly in 2019 and her role in using her platform while at the same time performing at the highest of world-class levels. Yep. Uh, other things to talk about, by the way, because we had a very busy weekend. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, 14 points now, Liverpool over Man City, 8 points over Leicester. Uh, Manchester Derby obviously won by Man United over City, surprisingly, uh, this weekend. We're going to talk about Liverpool's victory. We're going to talk about Leicester. Um, we're going to head over to Europe. Uh, Barcelona getting things going again. Bayern losing again in a crazy race in Germany. That's a lot of fun. Uh, we're going to get to North America. We're going to talk about Ernie Stewart's Chicago-only 
my way or the highway policy for U.S. soccer coaches and why that's not good. Uh, we're going to talk about the Liga MX final, which is now set between Club America and Monterey. Uh, we're going to look ahead to Champions League this week, final group stage games, and in particular, one fascinating one, Jesse Marsh's Red Bull Salzburg hosting Liverpool, and Jesse Marsh's team can knock out the reigning European champions with a victory, and if they do that, Salzburg would advance, which is a pretty incredible achievement just to get to the point in the final group stage game where Salzburg could do this. And this was no easy group. Napoli as well. Uh, so, yeah, it's uh, pretty incredible. But let's talk about Premier League here to start, as we typically do. And coming into this week, my friend, Manchester United, I thought this might be Ole's last week because they had midweek Tottenham with Mourinho, former Man United coach, coming in. Then they had to go to the Etihad to play Man City in the rivalry game. And if you had asked me last week when we were sitting here, I would have said zero points from this week for Man United. Ole's done. Absolutely. That's exactly what I was saying. I, I was thinking about, okay, Pochettino's now planning his uh, reintroduction to the Premier League, and I want to officially state my apology <laughs> to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and Manchester United because, as you mentioned, in the space of a week, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has now defeated Jose Mourinho and Pep Guardiola and he, this Manchester United team, specifically the Manchester Derby, came out to fight. And they came out to play well. And they came out to do the good things at the Etihad. Players like Fred, who I have been criticizing for a long time, was really outstanding. Obviously, the partnership with McTominay did a lot. This is a young team, you know, taking in mind... Uh, outside of your experienced players like Ashley Young or even David De Gea. This is a young team that's trying to get it, and they did everything correctly. They punched Man City in the face, right? That Mike Tyson comment, everybody has a plan until you punch them in the face. That's literally what Manchester United did. They knew that Guardiola is all about possession, trying to control the final third, and United just attacked them on the counter every time. Martial's goal was a sneaky one, sneak punch to Edison. It was just an overall really good performance. It's not to me, there's still a long path towards Manchester United and what they need to do in order to once again, you know, call themselves a title challenger. That We're still away from that. But this is a very good week. And there's a lot to be said for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. And I think hopefully this is for Manchester United and, and, and the supporters. This is the beginning of something that you can once again reclaim as what Manchester United used to be. I think you're putting this in the right context because it is just two games. It's two monster games for them where they get six points when most people thought zero was going to happen. But you look especially at the City game, and even both games, actually. I mean, Man United plays better against better teams. Yeah. And part of it, especially against City, seems to be that Man United's better on the counter. If you actually ask Man United to initiate... They're not that good at that. They're actually pretty poor at that. It all it kind of makes me think back to, you know, what do certain teams do well? In the World Cup final, France was a counterattacking team and they won. And I do think we're in a phase maybe now of world soccer where that's that's happening a bit more often that teams are relying on that. And it doesn't need to be embarrassing to play that way. I think that in any sport, you can add this. 
in order to win, to be successful, aside from adding all the, you know, tactical, uh, you know, factors that you want to put in as a coach, I think the most important thing, and it kind of comes from the, you know, Bill Belichick philosophy in many ways, is not necessarily highlight your strengths, but take away your opponent's weaknesses. And that's what Manchester United did this week. And as you said, the counter-attacking philosophy almost always is that. It, it's trying to say, we know what you're going to bring. We're not even going to try and be better at you at that. But we're going to try and nullify every single thing that you're good at in order for us to counter. And that's what Manchester United does. And that actually is what Liverpool does. Yeah, Liverpool really obviously has a philosophy and a strategy, but it's so good at taking away the strength of the opponent. And that, and that's what I think, you know, you can see in the modern game more often than not. And as you said, France in last year's World Cup. I do want to be clear. I don't think things are fixed at Man United no, just because no, they no, won no, these no, two no, games. No, 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 no. <laughs> right? It, that's not what we're saying. I, I mean, I began my sentence yeah. by saying we're not calling them a title-challenging team, but what I saw this week yeah. was something that we haven't seen in the past, not even when Solskjaer won against PSG last year. Right. What I'm seeing now is a, a cohesive unit, at least this week, saying, and you mentioned it, playing against big teams and delivering, now Manchester United has to be consistent. And you have to be on the roll to do it. And this is also the point where I remind everyone that Man United has the highest wage bill of any team in the Premier League <laughs> and shouldn't be an underdog ever. I mean, you know, they have a Europa League against uh, AZ Alkmaar, then a home to Everton, then a League Cup game against Colchester, Watford, a home to Newcastle, Burnley. These are all winnable matches. There are no excuses if you just saw what you just saw from this week. Not even Duncan Ferguson's mighty Everton? <laughs> if I've ever seen a team uh, that replicates how a player used to play like, that that was literally what I saw this weekend. That was incredible. <laughs> Everton, by the way, beating Chelsea after Marco Silva let go and Duncan Ferguson comes in on interim. And I don't think he really does have a chance to get the full job. He shouldn't, based on what he's done before. Um, but you never know. Um, well, it was it was a Duncan Ferguson performance. Yeah. If you ever remember from how he used to play, uh, you know, he gave you 150%. It wasn't always pretty, but, you know, he just, he gave you everything. And that's, you know, you saw that, you know, the foul count on Everton was so high, but it, it was so physical. Uh, I just loved it when he would hug every ball boy after every yes. ball. That, that was great to see. But I'm with you. I don't think he has the, the job. I mean, there's talks of David Moyes coming back, um, who obviously knows. <laughs> I don't know. To say well, I mean, I think there's a historical, you know, you know, uh, from 2002 to 2013, I believe he was there, you know, so it's a long rep relationship with them. There's also Unai Emery that's interested, maybe a report saying that he was even maybe approached by it. We don't know. But what I think, like you, is I don't think Duncan Ferguson has the job for the long run. Let's just say this is the best ball boy season ever. <laughs> this is the ball boy season. It really is. Yeah. I hope this becomes just a common thing every week where managers are running around hugging ball boys. It's just great. Um, let's talk Liverpool. Um, 3 nothing, easy win at Bournemouth, which is terrible right now. And here's a situation where Liverpool, as we mentioned earlier, has a big game on Tuesday, the early game, 12.55 p.m. Eastern against Salzburg. Sadio Mane didn't see here. Um, so... You know, this was a, a lineup where Nabi Keita looked good, by the way. And yep. you got a sense of how the depth of Liverpool is better, to be honest, than the depth of Man City. 
because we've seen Liverpool have injuries, put other guys in, Fabinho's out, Keita comes in, plays well. I think it's his first start of the Premier League this year. Uh, scores a goal, and and they just keep winning. Yep. I think that's the difference. I think the difference is now, as opposed to last season, is that now this isn't just a good... When, when we talked about Liverpool, we talked about a strong, talented, willing starting eleven. We're now talking about a squad that's able to just come in. I mean, Divock Origi did it in the Merseyside Derby. You mentioned Keita. You know, they put in Curtis Jones in this game. You know, it was just a, a solid win. You know, they have an important game in the Champions League. But now you're seeing a squad, and that's going to be key, especially these next two weeks because they have the Club World Cup and all these matches. But, you know, again, another strong win and another, you know, uh, just testament to Jurgen Klopp and what he's done with not just a, a starting eleven but a squad. Yeah. By the way, this was the best weekend of back heels we've seen in oh a long time because God. we'll talk about Luis Suarez and his goal later. But the Mo Salah back heel pass when he's got three defenders draped on him in a give and go to Keita for his goal, incredible. Yeah, it's what separates him from a great player to a top three, top five. That that's just what separates, you know. And that, I mean, I know we'll talk about Suarez's back heel because that was just unbelievable. But yes, yeah, so the last back heel in this particular game was fantastic. Um, let's mention Hummin Sound's goal for Spurs, which <laughs> how can you not like? In yeah, most of you have probably seen this goal, but if you haven't, please look it up and and notice where he gets the ball. He is literally at his own penalty box. I don't and know. then runs the whole freaking field. I don't I don't think we're going to be able to talk about it and do it. It's just poetry. And it's a mixture of everything that we remember from Maradona to a Messi goal a few years ago, you know, but this was just beautiful. And I tweeted, I remember when it happened, I said that something that's amazing about Son is that First of all, again, I put my hand... Well, right now I do because I said that if there was what a player that might struggle and the Mourinho might be son and it's kind of been the complete opposite. So I might as well just hand in my quitting <laughs> papers to Sports Illustrated. I'm sorry, I'm really not an expert at all. I'm just guessing here. But no, something that I said in terms of this goal is that usually what he does is when he receives the ball, he either goes wide or he penetrates just outside um, you know, the penalty box in order to provide to whether it's Harry Kane or Moda or somebody else. This time he was like, no, this is all me. And it was unbelievable. The amount of pace, ability to control the ball so close, the finish, everything. What a goal. Incredible. And I know people are going to say, you know, poor defending. But you know what? That's If that's what your takeaway is from this goal... Well, you're such go, a negative. Go player. away. Go away. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, that's just half glass empty. Like, come on. Because the, the bursts of speed on the ball that Son had in this goal, and then the ability to have the composure, because try doing this, everyone. Try running 80 yards, 90 yards, whatever it was, and having the presence of mind to then shoot with accuracy. Yeah. It, I, it, it's just an unbelievable goal. And if you don't say anything else but that, please go away. 5 nothing, by the way, in that game yeah. against Burnley for Spurs. Yeah, uh, big Spurs statement. comes back from the, the United loss. Um, and Leicester's a team that we really do need to talk about because at this point, I, I think you make a really good point here. It's like they fully deserve to be in second place. This is not some fluky thing. It is why I get, I'm getting a little annoyed when I see 
the description of the title race being, oh, it's a 14-point lead for uh, for Liverpool over City. Okay. But it's eight over Leicester. And it's not like they haven't earned those points. So as Grant mentioned, some of the things that we do here in the podcast, we obviously do extensive notes uh, before the taping. And one thing that I mentioned was, uh, the, to me at this moment, it's it's clear, clear as day, that the second best team in the Premier League is Leicester City. I I have watched, I watched them obviously against Aston Villa this weekend, and it's at it's the best team that Aston Villa has faced. Uh, you know, I, I'm telling you right now, and Liverpool's already come to Villa Park. Uh, it's visited Man City. So you're saying, wait, wait, so Leicester's a better team than Liverpool? <laughs> I'm saying that in the performance. Oh, okay. Against, okay, against, against Villa, it's the best team that, to me, okay. Aston Villa has faced. I think that the best team in the Premier League is Liverpool, and a clear second is Leicester City. Yeah. I think that some of the things that Brendan Rodgers... I mean, we can talk all about Jamie Vardy, who's just playing out of his mind right now, and we can talk about James Madison and just the offensive uh, chemistry that's going on, but something that's clear... Clear from the title-winning team, and even from a Brendan Rodgers squad before Leicester City, is the fact that they're so good defensively. Yeah, they are so good, and I'm not just talking about the defenders. I'm talking about as a team how they defend. They've only conceded ten goals in the Premier League. That's really remarkable for a team who just loves to attack and attack. The way that they pass the ball in the final third, the way that they understand each other, is just incredible. They're really good on set pieces. They don't give you a sniff of the ball if you're trying to attack Schmeichel, and they are the second best team in this uh, in this league for sure. And if there's somebody that's rivaling Liverpool right now, it's by far it's not Man City. They're third. It's Leicester City for sure. Yeah, I, and I mean comparing this even to Leicester's title-winning team, this is a better team. No, I think they are. I think tactically, when you watch them and what yeah. they do, listen, the, the title-winning team it will go down in history. Sure. We all know that, but I think it was more to do with you know, this do-or-die mentality that every time they went on that pitch, they killed themselves. And if we're being honest, poor performances that, that season by a number of top teams. Correct. Whereas what you're seeing now is a team that you can say, this is a Champions League qualifying oh, yeah. team. This is a team that can rival Liverpool for the title. They're playing really good stuff. The statistics are proving that offensively and defensively so that to me says and in talent overall talent this is a better team than the title winning team you know people are so quick to want to say oh the title race is over um and i'm i'm still holding out against saying that but if it gets to be a double digit lead for liverpool on everybody including leicester i think it's going to be very hard for liverpool not to win the title Listen, <laughs> I'm not going to go against math <laughs> and numbers. So unless it's un until it's mathematically impossible, I'm not going to say it's done. But this seems like a mountain. In this weekend especially. Yeah. You're just like, okay. This yeah, seems we're, like we're a mountain. And I know that every single Liverpool fan right now is saying, shut up, please be quiet. Um, but this is this is no longer... Like last year where, you know, the January lead was was strong, single digit, you know, towards the end of the month. And then, you know, Man City came back. This is a substantial lead where you just don't see any cracks. And it's not impossible for either Leicester or Man City to come back. 
but it's almost, <laughs> I think. Um, Man City is very disappointing to me. I, I And I, losing Laporte should not have had this big of an impact, but it has. Yeah, I mean, and you know, you, I'm I'm reading the comments from Guardiola after the game. He just seems sour right now. He's yeah, and it's I don't think there's an excuse here. I mean, you you have the money, you've had the plan, you've had the projections, and not I think not deepening the squad was a big mistake. Um, and like you said, I it, this it's like a sour, you know, bitter. And yes, it's like we said, it's almost impossible, but it's not over. And w- what are you going to do to fight back? And it just at this moment, it doesn't seem like it's going to happen. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about the bottom of the table, which makes sense. What are your thoughts? Well, it's funny because when you look at the bottom of the table, you look at 11th placed Arsenal, who, as we speak, still has to play West Ham later this afternoon, is on 19 points and 18th. Southampton, the 18th place, as long as as well as Aston Villa, who have joined points, but Villa is uh, on a better goal difference, is on 15 points. There's a four-point difference between 11th and the relegation, and the disparity between like what's going on in the bottom half to the title-winning race is unbelievable. So. All it takes is this Christmas period, this holiday period, to kind of switch so many things around. So even though we see Watford, Norwich, and Southampton in the relegation zone, things could look different for any of them. I we, mean, we could see some really good, like respected teams, like big, bigger, big-ish teams in in the relegation zone. Potentially, I mean, we talked about Everton's win against Chelsea, which you know was commendable, and the euphoria was great. But you know, they still have to play. They they're on 17 points in 14th place. Aston Villa is only above it on uh, goal difference. West Ham has 16 points as we speak. Burnley 18, Brighton 18, Arsenal on 19. I don't care how big you think a team is. At this point, there is no from 11th to 20th. Because Newcastle did come away with a good win, and they're on 22, so we have to make a little difference. They're on 10th. There is so much room for that bottom half to just completely change in the next two weeks. By the way, this isn't about the bottom of the table. It's more about Chelsea. They've lost three out of four now in the league after going through a really nice run, and it's also coincided with Christian Pulisic Mm. falling off after a really good run. So, um, And it's a young squad. Right? Um, yeah, yeah. But I mean, like, Man United's now in fifth after their six-point week. And so things can change a lot in that middle-to-bottom level very quickly right now in a way that we aren't going to see at the top of the table. Um, let's move over to Europe and talk about Barcelona, 5-2 over Mallorca. And uh, another hat trick from Leo Messi uh, in, in ridiculous goals, as he often does. I don't know what to say about this game. Like, if you watch the highlights, <laughs> the highlights are pretty great. Antoine Griezmann's opener was fantastic. Great ball from um, uh, Ter Stegen on uh, that one. And we could have talked all day about just that goal. Yeah. And then the goals keep coming. Like you said, the hat trick from Lionel Messi. I mean, at this point, what else can you say? Unbelievable. And then Luis Suarez back heel. How did that like not defy the laws of physics? I don't know. It was. Unbelievable. The angle from where he took the back heel, how it went round the keeper, the fact that he knew, he knew all along what he wanted to do. It was an unbelievable goal. Why do I feel like that's like a South American goal? Like the kind that, I mean, I haven't seen anyone else do that type of goal for a long time, if ever, 
but like I, exotic, we're exotic people, Grant. We like to score exotic. <laughs> I just I can't imagine some European dudes scoring that goal. Well, I mean, is maybe, that bad? Is that, is that I, sort of anti-European? I think me. You're going to get some angry <laughs> messages on, moving from, on. from Dutch and Spanish players. No, I mean, I, I know what you're saying, like the just, just the audacity to even try that. <laughs> but I think it's more about Luis Suarez. Just what, what, uh, what, I mean, we talk, I mean, obviously we've mentioned about Lewandowski, but Luis Suarez is obviously a player just, if he, if he didn't play with Messi, he would be somewhere else completely dominating that squad. I mean, he is already with Barcelona, but just what he does as a finisher is unbelievable. I just want to make sure that I got what I saw. He backheeled it into the ground, and then it went up? I'm, I'm watching it right now. Because, like, it's it just such a an insane finish. So, first of all, he's not facing goal, right. hence the backheel. Second of all, he's not right in front of goal. Right, he's not. He's not. It's not like the keeper's out. It's one on one, and he right. just back heels around him. He is at an angle, right, going against the goalkeeper and the defenders, and he does this ridiculous sort of. I, I don't want to say a curled back heel because that's not what it was. He just he just he just dinked it in the far post from the keeper. It's it's just unbelievable what he did. Let me ask you something: Son's goal or Suarez's goal? Which one's better? Mm. Um, great question. I am going to barely, barely lean towards Suarez. Why do you think? Because the inventiveness, the idea of how few people would even try it. Yeah, just the fact that nobody would even... Okay, so I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> oh, oh my God. Okay, so it's a one-two... He gives a one-two, and he's driving away from goal. Right. And the, the one-two is with Messi, I think, right? Yeah. So he gives a one-two with, with Messi, and he's driving away from goal. The keeper doesn't... No, it's not Messi. And <laughs> there's a defender that thinks he's going to pass it down or try and shoot from the near post. So instead of like trying to go around the keeper near post, he back heels it far post. And like you said, the laws of physics should not explain that because Suarez is actually, like the back heel should just basically be a pass and then somebody taps it in. But his back heel, like... But it hits the ground, like near him first, yes, the ball. Yes, yes. So he, it, and he actually, does it, it goes downward on it, a back heel and, and then up. And he does it first time. So it's not like he like he dribbles. You know what the inventiveness reminds me of? There's oh this great God. Ronaldinho at the height of his powers goal for Barcelona when he flicks it, he's back to goal, in the box. Oh, yeah, I remember. Defender on him, flicks it, and somehow, like, defies the laws of physics and gets it over the defender, you know, like, in himself and past the keeper. In South American, by the way. <laughs> Just so you know. So you may have a point. Just so you know. Um, and it, it, that, it's a little reminiscent for me. It's it's unbelievable. Yeah. I may have to go with Suarez as well. Yeah. It's, it's just, I don't want to like. I feel like I'm saying negative things I know, about Sonsko, and, and we so, shouldn't compare them. But it's yeah, fun job, to compare man. them. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, amazing goal. Which one of us do you think is better? Do you want to do, you want to do a stupid compare? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Unfair comparisons. Send the tweets <laughs> over. It's your favorite podcast. Yeah. I'm just, um, I'll just get my whole family to send, and then and then I'll win. Uh, <laughs> um. So let's move to Germany, which. Uh, if there's chaos at the bottom of the table in the Premier League, there's chaos at the top of the table 
in the Bundesliga. We've got Bayern losing again. Seven-time defending champion Bayern Munich is now in seventh place after a 2-1 loss at Gladbach, which continues to lead the league. Um, And you've got very much bunched up near the top here. A lot of different teams. Gladbach, Leipzig is on fire. Even Dortmund is now ahead of Bayern in the standings. They had a nice win over the weekend in some really sweet all-black shirts. Yeah. Um, And I would say that if you're talking title contenders, Gladbach, Leipzig, Dortmund, probably still Bayern. Um, Because in a weird way, Bayern has actually had two losses now in consecutive weekends. They lost to Leverkusen at home last weekend. And they've actually played okay. They created chances. They're just not finishing suddenly. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you would think that, you know, sooner rather than later, they have to announce a manager. I don't know if that's just the only issue, but... Well, at least they have the winter break, right? It's it's a long winter break. So I think I can see Flick going through the end of this first part of the season and then bringing in a coach. That's interesting. Because you have the Champions League game, which obviously uh, against Tottenham. And then after that, it's uh, Werder Bremen, Freiburg. Wolfsburg, and then they have the winter break. So that I mean, that's three games. I mean, I guess I guess you're right. I guess they have to wait no matter what for that winter break to like plan everything with the new manager. But here's hoping for their sake. I mean, two of those games are at home, so here's hoping for them that you know they they pick up some points because, like you said, I think the table is now representing the reality. Those are the top three best teams in the Bundesliga right now. And. Gladbach, let's give them some credit here. I mean, it was a late winner, but they were down one nothing in this game came back, and then they get Javi Martinez sent off for a bad tackle and then end up getting that penalty late um, in getting the win. So um, that's a team that I don't. I think it's fair to say nobody thought would be in this position at the beginning of the season. No. I mean, it's, I mean, we talk about the bottom half of the Premier League. Look at this in the Bundesliga. It's kind of incredible. At the beginning of the season, you might remember when I did my thing right before the season started and congratulated on winning the title to Bayern Munich, PSG, Man City, Juventus, um, is that, oh, and Barcelona. Mm. Basically because that's that they all had been repeat winners last year, and it really did seem like we had gotten into this rut. And here we are, and... Man City, not winning the, the league in England. Barcelona is in, in Spain. Juventus is not. They had their first loss of the season. but And that uh, was your guess, Inter Milan doing well. So Inter Milan uh, leading that league. Uh, PSG is leading in France. Uh, and in Germany, Bayern is in seventh place right now, though they could come back. I mean, like, I still feel like maybe everybody but City could still win the league. Yeah. Could. Yeah. Still, I mean, this is surprising. It's it's, I just the journey of of, of respective leagues has been very interesting. Yeah. Um, let's talk Italy just a, a just a second here. I don't like talking Italian soccer much lately, just because I'm so disgusted by everything that happened. Because there's like again this week, Corriere dello Sport, one of their top uh, publications, dailies for sports, uh, totally racist headline uh, for a story mentioning Lukaku and. Uh, smalling uh, and just highlighting their race idiotically. So they get called out rightfully on that. And then they double down calling, saying that something's like a lynching. And, and like, you're done, Corriere del Sport, you're done. 
And and I, I still struggle with this, like even talking about Italian soccer right now. Um, yeah. Right? Of course. Because, listen, in one way, I, I don't like this whole overall pointing finger to the entire because right now what you're saying is the entire country is being blamed for it, right? Or like at least the overall. But Serie A has seri- needs to really talk about this, not just talk about it, but create actionable causes in order to rectify this. And now, as you said, major newspapers are not understanding what's going on. And it makes it extremely difficult to try and discuss this league. Well, Clint Smith, who you should follow on Twitter, we've had him on the podcast as an interview guest, just as like, he tweets, I, I don't know how any black player could want to play in Italy. Like, why? You know, why? Um, so um, Juventus does lose to Lazio. Lazio's actually doing pretty well, uh, unexpectedly. Um, Inter ends up tying uh, in that game against Roma. So even though Inter dropped points, they end up uh, gaining a point in the race or two points up on Juventus. Um and we'll see, um, you know, where things go from here in Italy. But uh, you know, Inter's put themselves in a position where you know they could be in the driver's seat. Yep, absolutely. I mean, this is a a, a good team that that is doing, um, that's playing well. Again, they break up for play just before Christmas, uh, twelve uh, twenty-two, the weekend, a few days before Christmas Day. That's when they break Italian soccer, and then it returns again. January 5th, and then Napoli faces Inter Milan in that, that week, and so that, that should be a good one. In midweek here, Inter has a chance to advance in a tough Champions League group with Barcelona and Dortmund. Uh, they're hosting, Inter's hosting Barcelona, but Barcelona's already advanced as the group winner, so they may not even play their best guys. I kind of expect them not to. I don't think and, so. I mean, and, you have a classical coming up as well. You know. Right, and so Inter has a real opportunity to... Uh, to beat Dortmund to the punch in advance. So that would be big for them. Um, Let's move to North America. I want to talk about uh, U.S. soccer sporting director Ernie Stewart's comments over the weekend about this new policy requiring all coaches on the national team program, men's and women's side, uh, senior national team coaches, youth national team coaches, to live in Chicago, where U.S. soccer is based, um... And there are a lot of things happening with U.S. soccer this weekend because there was a, a board meeting um, in Chicago and some good reporting out there from it. Lots of things being discussed. Uh, the CEO search continues. That's been sort of ongoing and kind of endless. And we talked about how it really doesn't that new CEO needs to come from the outside just because the culture inside U.S. soccer is needs change. Um, we also are starting to see some reports come out, Caitlin Murray today, uh, about uh, U.S. soccer's role with the NWSL. Um, it was one of our questions when I tweeted questions for us, so we can definitely address it. In flux there. Um, you know, U.S. soccer has been operating that league that's supposed to end this year, but uh, Caitlin's reporting that uh, U.S. soccer declined a proposal from the NWSL owners to provide more money and funding as the league itself starts to independently manage itself. Counter proposal from U.S. Soccer, she reported, would be to continue managing the NWSL for another year, which hadn't even come up as a possibility. So lots to come there still. Um, 
And then Ernie Stewart talks to reporters about this Chicago policy. And there's a few things about this, I would say, uh, from my perspective. Um, One is, I think you are going to limit the quality of potential coaches for your national teams by saying you have to move to Chicago. So, like, if you ever really do want uh, an international manager, like a a truly first-rate international manager to manage the U.S. men's team, and I'm thinking Pep Guardiola, I'm thinking Diego Simeone, any number of that type, they're not going to want to move to Chicago, and they're going to laugh if you tell them you have to. I don't know what the thinking is here. I think it's a power move. By Ernie Stewart, I really do because, like, so it's arrogance. Um, power move, maybe. I mean, like, I I think it's a situation where he wants to be interacting as the sporting director, the identity shaper, with the head coach every day. And you know what? Head coaches don't like that. They call it micromanaging. They don't like it. In fact, this has always been a problem in U.S. soccer. I can remember Bruce Arena. During the first Bruce Arena stage, when he got the U.S. to the quarterfinals of the World Cup in 2002, having major issues with what he called micromanaging from U.S. soccer on what he was trying to do. And he wasn't even living in the same city as U.S. soccer at that point and had issues with U.S. soccer meddling too much. So if that's the case, Bob Bradley had the same issues when he was the U.S. men's national team coach. And then Ernie Stewart has these comments of... No club team in the world, uh, you know, has coaches spread out like this. Well, you know what? This isn't a club team. Why are you calling? Why are you comparing it to a club team? Why are you comparing this to the Netherlands, which is a tiny country? This is a giant country with players all over the place, and to require coaches to live in Chicago, which is really cold for much of the year where there are no like there happens to be a US soccer base of operations in this cramped old building in Chicago but no US soccer facilities like fields and training centers and things like that why on earth would you require coaches to be there out of any country the US is the one place where you should not be restricted to location when it comes to scouting, development, et cetera. As you mentioned, you can't compare what's going on with U.S. soccer and its development with somewhere like the Netherlands or England. California State is bigger. You can't do that. You can't micromanage somebody, make them live somewhere, and restrict them from a job that they're trying to do, which at this moment, at its most important is to discover talent that's more multicultural from different backgrounds. And the moment you say you have to live here, you have to be here, like you said, many top-notch coaches are going to say this is laughable. This would be laughed in in South America. Just like, are you joking? Europe, any other place. And it doesn't even need to be Pep Guardiola that you're pursuing to have this feeling. If Tata Martino if they had been smart enough to actually be interested in interviewing him, if you had told Tata Martino, you've got to live in Chicago? Do you think he would have done that? No. I don't. Absolutely not. 
And you no, we're not talking about Guardiola's. We're talking about any kind of manager with a reputation. Like you, the moment you do that, you're already trying to pigeonhole them and restrict them from the overall job, which is to this is a country where has so much talent yet undiscovered. Why are you saying you need to live here, be based here? It's just ridiculous. You know, if they're going to insist, if they were going to insist on we all on this on the sporting side have to live in the same city, just have them in L.A. Yeah, you know, not Chicago. You don't need to have that connection to the bean counters at U.S. Soccer. It's just, it's just weird. Ugh. Um, let's talk briefly. Liga MX final is set. Club America, Monterey. Yeah. What do you think? Um, you know, Club America came back from the first leg against uh, Monarcas uh, and reached the final once again. So now we have Club America against Monterrey. It's a two-legged final, which will be played actually. During uh, the holiday week, the actual holiday week, I believe the first leg is even after Christmas Day, so that'll be interesting. And it's actually incredible for Monterrey right now. Rayadas, their women's team, yep. won Liga MX final against Tigres. Now they have themselves in the final of uh, the Apertura, and now uh, they're also getting ready for the Club World Cup. So, you know, it's it's a lot going on in Monterrey and and, and this team. So, you know, uh, it should be interesting to see, again, just how we talk about Liverpool and juggling everything, how they're going to juggle this. Uh, but, you know, well done, Monterrey. Both women's and men's, uh, you know, doing great things. Women's winning uh, the entire thing. So we'll see what happens against Club America. By the way, Memo Ochoa, who, you know, uh, Club America's goalkeeper, had a rough uh, middle sort of, you know, halfway through the season. And it's, so it's good to see for him to, you know, get that final. Question for you. With the trend of two-legged finals, like in the Libertadores final moving to one leg, would you prefer in Liga MX a one-leg final or a two-leg? I don't like two-leggers yeah, at all. Not with the final. I just, I, I just don't think, I think that, I think that it's with any kind of two-legged situation, you're trying to give advantage to something that doesn't need an advantage. Like the, if you play it in a neutral spot with enough time to prepare, what's the problem? I don't, I don't think that, I think that the philosophy behind thinking that if you play at home, you're getting an advantage. I think that there's a difference between that and in a final when you can just, you know, ultimately decide who's the winner in a neutral situation. I mean, I get it. There's so many other things like marketing perspectives and, you know, financially it benefits both teams if you have your own home final. But, you know, a two-legged final just doesn't even aesthetically seem right to me. Just I'm a, with you on that. A one-off. Just as long as you have preparation enough enough yeah. time, you know? Um, a couple of quick things. want to congratulate Stanford on winning the NCAA women's title on penalties against North Carolina. Their goalkeeper, right? What dude, what a gift. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and uh Stanford's got a lot of really good players who you're gonna see at the international level as well, including for the United States. Um so congratulations to them. Um also this weekend, just wanted to uh congratulate uh, the organizers of the Princeton Soccer Conference. I was down there on Saturday and Sunday. We're starting to see this more often where universities organize these soccer conferences. Yale did it uh, earlier this year. Princeton did it this weekend. I ended up doing a couple of different panels. One was on uh, women's pro soccer with a really good panel. Um, uh, Yael Averbush, who was on the podcast not too long ago. Brooke Elby uh, from Chicago, who's the president of the NWSL PA. We had Tyler Lucy, who plays for Portland, a uh, Princeton student. 
uh, a former Princeton student, uh, and then uh, Esmeralda Negron, former Princeton Final Four player, who now uh, works for Relevant Sports, organizing the ICC Women's Tournament. That's Just great. A really good discussion about um, what's happening right now in the women's pro soccer sphere, sort of outside the U.S. women's national team, which I don't think people know enough about or enough people know. Um, and then uh, I did a Q&A with Charlie Stilitano. Oh, Charlie. The one and only, um, which was a lot of fun about how he became the best connected American in European soccer. He organizes the ICC men's games every summer. Um, and then uh, I was also a panelist on uh, a panel with uh, Charlie and Court Jesk of USL. And um, Sebastian Alvarado moderated that one just about the future of soccer in North America, which obviously you could spend days talking about, but it was a good conversation. Um, and then, um, yeah, a lot of good people down there. So, um, Yeah, it was great to see all the images. So, so you, obviously, and so many good friends. I was invited. I couldn't do it. My sister was here on the weekend. So I just ate a lot and, <laughs> and, and drank and danced. Awesome. That sounds <laughs> but, like fun. <laughs> <laughs> but no, all the images look good. And I, I think I, I'm with you. I like the fact that more universities and... Uh, and I want to see more like, you know, um, high schools, you know, mo more of our media representatives and lecturers, et cetera, enter like high schools, especially in underprivileged communities to just tell them like how, how great the sport is and how there is a job for you if you ever want to talk about it, report it, et cetera. So something to think about. I have one question from the tweet that uh, I said, you know, um, anybody want to ask something? And Javier Campos, to both of us, who do you think is going to be the coach of Inter-Miami? We've been dying to know for months now. Sort of thought we would have known by now. Yeah, I know, it's kind of um, weird. You know, especially because Jorge Mas keeps saying, oh, we're imminently announcing. You know, like, no, he's not. He never announced anybody. He's been saying this for months now. Um, Inter-Miami knows it's scheduled from the opening weekend to the next weekend, and it still doesn't have a manager. I mean, their training, their training camp opens in just over a month, and they don't have a head coach. It's great. I mean, it's obviously going to happen. Who do you think is going to be? David Beckham at this point because like <laughs> they, they're be. running out of possibilities. Uh, I mean, there was reporting out there that Marcelo Gallardo turned them down. Um, I think he still sees that he has unfinished business in Argentina, and I don't think that the idea of you know the no relegation situation, maybe salary caps and travel, maybe kind of is impeding him a little bit. At least at this stage, we heard Patrick Vieira too report to that. I would really not like that. Nothing against Patrick Vieira. I just, yeah, what's your problem with that? I want to see a South American. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, it's me being, it's me being extremely, uh, you know, uh, biased. Well, but, I mean, Santiago Solari is another name that got mentioned at one point. Then uh, he said he really wasn't interested. So I know they want to make an impression, but get it done, guys. It's just a bit weird that, like you said, the training camp begins in literally f like three and a half weeks. Well, I went and I looked back at how much of a time gap there was. So if LAFC and Atlanta are sort of the gold standards yep. for MLS expansion teams, okay. I wanted to know how much time had passed between the hiring of Bob Bradley and Tata Martino and when their seasons, their first season started. And, and it was more like, I think for Bradley, it was like six or seven months. And for Tata, it was actually fewer than I expected. It was like three or four. Um, and keep in mind that Tata... Uh, Paul McDonough, who's the Inter-Miami personnel guy, was at, Atlanta. was at Atlanta when Tata started. So maybe there's a little bit of a um, 
a similarity of how he's approaching things there. But like, yeah, get it done. I just just want to see it. But yeah, we'll we'll find out soon enough, I guess. But David Beckham, that would be cool. If one day he wakes <laughs> up and he's like, you know what, Jorge, I want to manage into Miami. That was actually pretty good. Yeah, I know. Your impression. I know it was good. <laughs> We're going to do the whole next podcast with you talking in that voice. Victoria, what do you think about Miami? <laughs> All right. That is it for this week. Thanks so much for joining us. Take care.